Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was 1898, in the midst of a brutal Chicago winter. The owner of a popular saloon worked the taps on a quiet afternoon. He hoped customers would make their way through the winter chill. He enjoyed the company of his patrons. After all, many of them came to see him, a minor, albeit notorious, celebrity. The sound of the door caught his attention. A uniformed detective shuffled in from the cold. The middle-aged officer slid onto a stool at the empty bar with a grunt. Then he settled his narrow eyes on the bar owner. The man behind the bar cast a blank expression, then grinned. He shared a past with the officer who now sat across from him. They'd been partners and shared secrets that cast a ripple effect through their lives and their community. As the men looked at each other now, some of those memories resurfaced. It all seemed so distant as they assessed each other's graying hair and grown-out bellies. The bar owner scanned the detective's eyes and wondered if his former partner might still have some questions. But as he wiped a beer mug clean, he resolved to take certain things to the grave. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solve Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our final episode on the 1889 murder of Dr. Patrick Henry Cronin. Last week, we covered the hunt for the missing Cronin and the gruesome discovery of his mutilated corpse. This week, we'll cover the hunt for the killers and the truth behind the secret society's conspiracy. We'll end with a jaw-dropping conclusion to what was known as the trial of the century. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 
On May 22, 1889, the search for Dr. Patrick Henry Cronin had ended in tragedy. The 44-year-old's corpse was pulled from a sewer drain in a rural part of Lakeview, a Chicago neighborhood. The decomposing body showed signs that multiple attackers bludgeoned, slashed, and stabbed the doctor to death. Lead detective on the case, Captain Michael Shack, found himself in the middle of a tangled web. He believed that the killers were part of a secret Irish group known as Clan Nagale, of which his partner, Dan Coughlin, was a member. Coughlin's involvement with the group came out after Cronin's murder was confirmed, but Shaq was still uncertain whether the secret society was involved in the doctor's demise. Either way, the lead detective withheld the information about Coughlin's membership from the chief of police, putting his own career at risk. Two days after Cronin's body was discovered, there still hadn't been any arrests. Agitated, Shaq opened his morning paper then dropped his coffee mug to the floor. The stable owner, Pat Dinnan, who had rented the horse and wagon to Dan Coughlin, gave an interview to the Chicago Times. Dinnan revealed Coughlin's involvement and explained that Cronin was seen in the same horse and wagon the night he was murdered. The reporter called the situation a police cover-up. Shaq rushed to the station, but it was too late. The police chief was already in his office with several other important men in the community, as well as everyone involved in the investigation, except for Shaq and Coughlin. But then Coughlin arrived and entered the chief's office. Shaq knew what this meant, but all he could do now was wait. He took a seat outside the closed door of the office. After two hours, Coughlin reemerged alongside another officer. The officer gripped Coughlin's arm and led him away. Shaq then heard the chief call for him from inside the office. When the detective entered, he saw the chief leaning over his desk with his hands folded. You knew about the horse and wagon? I had reason to believe it wasn't the same horse. Anyway, I lead the investigation, not the papers. Our department looks like a disgrace. I assured the press no police were involved in the murder, and now I learn about Coughlin? What exactly did he say? That he and Patrick O'Sullivan are both members of a group, Clan Nagale, and you let him speak to the press about Alexander Sullivan? Get out of my sights, Jack. You're off the case. Shaq was removed from the case and publicly disgraced. His decision to keep Coughlin's clan membership secret was the final nail in the trust his superior officers had in him. Shaq and Coughlin's corruption was a massive blow to the reputation of the Chicago police. While the press had embarrassed them, the police were determined to get to the bottom of it all and redeem themselves as best they could. The chief had already assigned several other detectives to the case, so around the same time he let Shaq and Coughlin go, those detectives got to work. The new detectives began with someone who'd recently roused their suspicions, local ice house owner Patrick O'Sullivan. They had their eyes on Patrick because of wounds found on Dr. Cronin's corpse. Some appeared to be inflicted by a tool resembling an ice pick. Not to mention Cordelia Conklin, Cronin's friend and a key witness, believed Patrick was somehow involved. 
Detectives knew that Patrick was stubborn about speaking to authorities, but they summoned him to the police station anyway. Cough it up, O'Sullivan. Tell us what you did to the good Dr. Cronin. I assure you, Detective, I'm but a humble ice merchant. I don't know anything about this murder business. And you don't know anything about Clan Nagale, ain't that right? This ain't the right time for nonsense, buddy. We've got a witness who told us you're a part of this thing. Witness? I don't see how... I've got nothing to do with any of this. There's no way you could have a witness. You calling me a liar? You can't do that. I called you a liar first. Now tell us which one of your secret clubhouse boys helped you ice the dock, and you might escape the hangman's noose. I told you I had nothing to do with this. You should be looking somewhere else. Hey, maybe my neighbors had something to do with it. Neighbors? What neighbors? The Carlsons. They own a rental shack by my ice house. Suspicious things tend to go down there. Maybe you should check them out instead. Yeah, we'll take a look, O'Sullivan. But I don't think this is the end of it. You're free to go. For now. Based on O'Sullivan's tip, Lieutenant Herman Schutler and Captain E.H. Wing rode to the rural area where the ice house sat in a row of buildings. When they arrived at the remote neighborhood, the abandoned rental cottage immediately caught Schutler's eye. You think it's that last cottage there? Yes, sir, that's the one. Belongs to the Carlsons. Mm, looks empty. <laughs> Suppose it is. Mm, and that's Patrick O'Sullivan's ice house? Yeah, don't point. Don't want to spook Patrick too much. Mm. Strange you'd ask us to look at something right near his place, isn't it? Indeed it is. Let's find out what he thinks he's hiding. Hey, is that blood? I think it is. The men noticed a trail of dried blood leading into the empty cottage. While Wing stood back in horror, Schutler threw his weight against the rental house door. It burst open, and what the police saw inside paralyzed them. The floor and the walls were covered in blood. Someone had tried to paint over the gory mess, but they could see the visible signs of a struggle. Broken and blood-soaked furniture were scattered across the room. In the center sat a damaged rocking chair. The officers searched high and low for anything that might be relevant to Cronin's murder. Then a glimmer caught Schutler's eye from under the washstand. He bent down and picked up a key. The key raised more questions than it answered, because it didn't fit anything inside the cottage. Schutler sighed and slipped it into his pocket. Resolute, the detectives continued searching and soon found a receipt for the purchase of all the furniture in the cottage. Evidently, the furniture came from a shop in Chicago. This is it, isn't it? This is where Cronin was killed. I want to hear what the Carlsons have to say about this. Agreed. Let's hang on to the key and receipts to bring back to the station. The two detectives then marched to the Carlsons' home and knocked on the door. When the couple answered, they seemed startled but unsurprised. Schutler demanded they explain themselves at once. The Carlsons seemed relieved to tell their side of the story. Apparently, they knew about the bloodstains but were too afraid to go to the police. However, now that the officers had discovered the scene themselves, the couple talked. 
They said that on March 20th, about a month and a half before Dr. Cronin went missing, a man who went by the name Frank Williams rented the cottage. Williams seemed a little shifty, but he claimed his siblings were going to move in with him once they arrived in Chicago. This convinced the Carlsons to lease to him. Furniture soon arrived at the cottage, and after that, the couple saw little of Williams. However, suspicious-looking people regularly filed in and out of the house. One strange man even wanted to pay rent on behalf of Williams, saying that Williams had to take care of a sick relative in another state. The Carlsons were suspicious and refused to accept this deal. By early May, the cottage sat empty, save for the furniture. When they mentioned the situation to their neighbor, Patrick O'Sullivan, he surprised them by offering to pay Williams' rent if the man never returned. Hoping they could rent the cottage to someone else, the Carlsons sent their son in one day to clean up the rooms. That was when he discovered the gruesome scene and told his parents. The officers thanked the couple, then rushed back to the station. They shared their newfound evidence and witness testimonies with their colleagues, who prompted them to seek the help of a medical examiner named Dr. Brandt. Brandt visited the scene at the cottage to collect blood samples. He compared these to the bloodstains in the trunk that was found in Lakeview after Cronin went missing. His findings set the police force into high gear. The samples matched. From there, detectives set out for the Chicago furniture shop and demanded information about the furniture from the cottage. The shop owner looked through some records and revealed that those pieces were purchased in February, months before Cronin's murder. In addition, the purchase list included a large trunk, just like the one police found in Lakeview. But according to the shop owner, the items weren't originally delivered to Lakeview. They went to three different rented rooms right there in Chicago. The detectives felt the trail heat up. If the person who rented those rooms was the same person who bought the furniture, then they could be tied to the rental cottage and therefore the bloody incident. They rushed to the apartment building and called on the landlord. The landlord said that a man calling himself J.B. Simons rented the units, which was the same name as the person who had bought the furniture. On March 20th, a rent collector was sent by because Simons failed to pay the rent. But Simons wasn't home, so the collector returned the next day. The collector peered into one of the units through the keyhole. He noticed the room was empty. All the furniture had suddenly been moved out. The landlord let the detectives into the apartment. They paced the bare floor and scanned the naked walls. Then they noticed the window. One detective pushed it open and stuck his head out. He squinted out into the midday light and scoured the city street below. What the detective saw floored him. The apartment overlooked the Opera House block, the same building where one of Dr. Cronin's offices was located. Someone had been watching the doctor months before the murder. But there was still a big mystery left to solve. The detectives had no idea who J.B. Simons was or how to find him, if that was even his real name. In the meantime, the detectives hurried back to the station where the evidence was stored. They shoved aside boxes and found the large trunk. Then they grabbed the key that was found in the cottage. 
one of the detectives took a deep breath, jammed the key into the trunk's lock, and... It was a perfect fit. The police now had proof that this trunk had carried a body out of the cottage. They were certain the doctor had been killed there. The culprits were the only things left for them to find. But victory wouldn't come that easily. Up next, the police are beaten to the punch. The I-5 Strangler, the Southside Dentist, the Berlin Butcher, meet the many faces of evil in the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, take a journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers takes an in-depth look at the horrors beyond the headlines. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that left an indelible stain on history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. On May 25, 1889, Detective Michael Schack had run out of time in the hunt for Dr. Patrick Henry Cronin's killers. Schack's partner, Dan Coughlin, was arrested for withholding his connection to the crime, a secret that Schack himself concealed. Schack was replaced by other detectives, who took over the case and quickly found important new leads. For one, these detectives had learned that Coughlin and Patrick O'Sullivan, a suspect and owner of an ice house, were members of the same secret Irish group known as Clan Nagale. That information, along with the discovery of a likely murder scene near the ice house, was all authorities needed to charge Patrick as part of the murder conspiracy. A couple of days later, after Patrick Henry Cronin was laid to rest with an enormous funeral procession, police arrested Patrick O'Sullivan. Now he and Dan Coughlin were in custody, but both men claimed innocence and revealed no other information. As the next step, a coroner's inquest was assembled. A vital precursor to a murder trial, the six-man jury would identify suspects and piece together the murder timeline— About a week after the arrest of Patrick O'Sullivan, the jury began hearing witness testimonies. Days of testimonies revealed crucial information. It seemed that Cronin had died as part of a Clan Nagale conspiracy. And it was revealed that the notorious Alexander Sullivan was, in fact, one of the group's leaders. But the police still needed more information. And soon they got it. A man named Luke Dillon joined the courtroom. Unlike other witnesses who only gave broad strokes, Dillon was ready to spill everything. I am a member of Clan Nagale, and I am certain that Alexander Sullivan is the man behind Dr. Cronin's death. Did Sullivan carry out the murder himself? He at least orchestrated it, and he will get away with it if you're not diligent. He's gotten away with far worse. Why did Sullivan want Cronin dead? 
Dr. Cronin wanted Sullivan reprimanded for crimes against his own people. The jury sat in silence as Dylan described Clan Nagale's history. He explained that Clan Nagale was a secret group of Irish revolutionaries based in America. Together with Irish rebels overseas, they fought a guerrilla war against England to win Ireland back its freedom. And as Alexander Sullivan rose to power, their tactics escalated. The Klan began to send Irish Americans to England. Their job was to carry out what they called the Dynamite War, in which they executed bombings in England. Sullivan himself was behind a number of bombings, including one in London that injured innocent people. The Dynamite War was costly, both in terms of money and human lives. Most of the attacks ended in failure, and even the ones that succeeded led to injuries and arrests. Some Klan members began to speak out against the entire operation, but Sullivan remained committed to it. Sullivan had also promised to look after the families of men who were killed or captured in this line of duty. But over time, it became clear that he wouldn't offer anything to the Klan's widows and children. This caused Clan Nagale brothers to question his worth as a leader. Many spoke out. Among these voices was Patrick Henry Cronin. The doctor sought to have Sullivan removed from power and became the face of this campaign. Dylan paused to assess his audience's reaction. The jury appeared shocked to hear how deep the rabbit hole went. Dylan pressed on. The Dynamite War wasn't Sullivan's only sin. By this time, he was already president of the Irish National League, and Dr. Cronin believed that he'd embezzled $100,000 from the group. Cronin started sending letters and talking with other members of the Klan, telling them the truth about Sullivan. What was Sullivan's response to all this? Well, he denied it. And then he charged Dr. Cronin with treason, slander, and, and violation of the Klan's constitution. And what did Cronin do then? He persisted. He wanted everyone to know of Sullivan's corruption, so he continued his campaign to remove Sullivan from power. For that, Sullivan wanted the doctor to pay. First, he started spreading rumors that Cronin was a spy. And that's how he created ground for his next move, to kill Cronin. The six-man jury sat speechless. Dylan's testimony had shed light on events that law enforcement probably wouldn't have learned on their own. And the river of information didn't stop there. Soon after the hearing, two more names relevant to the case came up. John Beggs and Martin Burke. They were also members of Clan Nagale and associates of Sullivan's. The inquest jury ultimately concluded that Alexander Sullivan, Patrick O'Sullivan, and Dan Coughlin were involved in Cronin's murder. On the night of June 11th, Alexander Sullivan was arrested. However, just days later, his defense team argued that no concrete evidence linked him to the murder, and his wealthy friends paid his bail. He would not see prison walls again without a more substantial break in the case. Even though Sullivan walked free, the news of his arrest sent shockwaves. The U.S. government declared that secret societies were a danger to the nation. Not to mention, the press began leaking Clan Nagale's operations and membership. This significantly weakened the secret brotherhood. 
law enforcement now faced the added battle against public opinion. In an effort to stay on top of their investigation, they paid another visit to the Carlsons to show them a picture of a man named Martin Burke, one of the suspects whose name cropped up after the inquest. The Carlsons immediately recognized him and confirmed that this was their former renter, who went by the name Frank Williams. As it turned out, Burke had fled to Canada, but authorities were able to track him down and arrest him. The detective didn't think that Burke would be able to hire a lawyer for his extradition case since he was a working-class immigrant, but on the day of the trial, he was proven wrong. Burke had a lawyer. Even though Burke was ultimately ordered to return to the U.S., Schutler felt this was a troubling sign of things to come. Someone was watching over this case. It seemed that even in Canada, the long, shadowy hands of Alexander Sullivan pulled the strings. As law enforcement felt the dark cloud of organized crime rise above them, the rest of the world turned their attention to what became known as the Trial of the Century. A handful of Clan Nagale members would be tried for the murder of one of their own, and their leader sat safely on his throne. To many, the outcome of the trial would determine where real power was found. Among order, or lawlessness. Up next, the trial of the century begins. Now, back to the story. In August of 1889, the trial for the murder of Dr. Patrick Henry Cronin began. Since the inquest, Alexander Sullivan had not only been let out on bail, he also avoided any charges. Cronin's friends and the press suspected corruption, that Sullivan had bribed his way out of trouble. Although the suspected architect of the murder had escaped justice, a handful of his cohorts would be tried together. This included ex-detective Dan Coughlin, Iceman Patrick O'Sullivan, and three others recently accused, Clan Nagale members Martin Burke and John Beggs, plus a small-time crook named John Coonsey. Jury selection was a two-month battle due to personal bias and alleged bribery. Shadowy hands offered cash up to anyone who would argue in favor of the defendants. The figure behind those bribes was wildly speculated by the press and public to be none other than Alexander Sullivan. This rumor troubled local law enforcement, who had already come to believe that Sullivan was secretly pulling the strings of the case. Once a jury was finalized, witness testimonies began. The court heard from people, including Dr. Cronin's longtime friends and witnesses to his final hours, the Conklins, members of Clan Nagale, and medical experts. Their testimonies, as well as research that's taken place since, helps us formulate an understanding of Dr. Patrick Henry Cronin's final hours. While some of these details remain shrouded in mystery, This is our best guess for how the murder took place. By February of 1889, Cronin showed no signs of giving up his crusade against Alexander Sullivan. For this, Sullivan started a rumor that Cronin was a spy for the English. In a group such as Clan Nagale, whose sole mission was to liberate Ireland, an English spy deserved nothing less than death. 
Sullivan ordered Martin Burke to rent out the Chicago apartments using the fake name of Frank Williams. Burke watched Cronin's office across the street and recorded his schedule. Originally, Burke had probably planned to kill Cronin when he was alone in his office. But on that busy Chicago street, anyone could hear the sounds of a struggle. So Burke and Sullivan found a more secluded location. For this, Sullivan reached out to other members of Clan Nagale. The Iceman, Patrick O'Sullivan, suggested the cottage next to his business. So on March 20th, Burke rented the Carlson cottage and had the trunk and other furniture delivered there. Then he, Patrick, and Sullivan planned their attack. In late April, Patrick offered Cronin a paid retainership to care for his workers. That ensured he could get Cronin to come to the ice house. Cronin agreed to the offer, and on May 4th, Dan Coughlin rented the horse and wagon from Dinan. At 7.30 p.m. that same night, someone, possibly a man named Charles McDonald, came to Cronin's office and summoned him to the ice house. Cronin packed his things and left with the stranger. Cronin entered the Carlson's cottage to find Sullivan and his cronies waiting for him. At this point, it's possible that Sullivan accused Cronin of being a spy, and Cronin denied the accusation. In any case, before long, one of the men clubbed Cronin in the back of the head. Cronin collapsed to the ground, and all the men fell on him with knives. Patrick, terrified but loyal, clumsily stabbed at Cronin with his ice pick. Soon, Cronin lay lifeless in a pool of blood. The men stripped the doctor's body naked, but none would touch the Catholic medallion that hung from his neck. They locked Cronin in the trunk, but in the bloody mess, one of them dropped the key under the washstand. Then they loaded the trunk onto the wagon. They traveled to the storm sewer about a mile away. Perhaps at this point they realized they didn't have the key, so they smashed the trunk open with a shovel. Finally, they delivered Cronin into his murky tomb. However, the defense would have likely poked holes in this version of events. After all, there was no evidence that put any of the men in the cottage that night, and nothing proved that Sullivan orchestrated the murder. Plus, Sullivan wasn't even on trial. Former Detective Michael Shack also provided testimony. However, it was aimed mostly at protecting himself and Dan Coughlin. While he did admit to knowing Coughlin was a member of Clan Gale, he wouldn't confirm how he knew it. Further, it's unknown why Patrick O'Sullivan tipped law enforcement off about the Carlson's rental cottage in the first place. Perhaps he was trying to pin the crimes on the couple. Or maybe, albeit less likely, he just wanted all the madness to end. Many questions were left unanswered, and it would still be some time before the court came to a decision. Finally, on Monday, December 16th, The courtroom readjourned for the closing of the trial of the century. The accused men filled their seats before the judge. All of America awaited the jury's word. Then a juryman stood to address the judge and the court. The entire country held its breath. For John Beggs, we find him not guilty and acquitted of all charges. For Patrick O'Sullivan, we find him guilty and sentence him to life in prison. 
For Martin Burke, we find him guilty and sentence him to life in prison. For John Kunze, we find him guilty and, as a minor accomplice, we sentence him to only three years. For the defendant, Dan Coughlin, we find him guilty and sentence him to life in prison. Shaq stood from his seat. He was stunned. Around him, spectators grew agitated. No one could believe that every man was spared the death sentence. Their crimes were too egregious. Apparently, one of the jurors had refused a death sentence on moral and religious grounds. Perhaps he felt that this sentence was a way of restoring peace and nonviolence. However, the public felt deflated. The fervor of the case had overtaken many, and these sentences didn't provide the closure they'd hoped for. After all, Alexander Sullivan also remained free, and the community still faced the issue of corruption within their policing system. But the story wasn't quite over. In January of 1890, John Kunze was released on a $5,000 bail. Some of his trial mates weren't as lucky, however. Two years into their prison sentences, Patrick O'Sullivan and Martin Burke both died from tuberculosis. Clan Nagale never recovered from the humiliation. As a result of the trial, many Irish Americans in Chicago felt ashamed to learn about the Klan conspiracy. In this disappointed mood, they even canceled the city's St. Patrick's Day celebrations in 1890. Although Alexander Sullivan was never charged for Cronin's murder, he was believed by most to be the man responsible. A magazine cover cartoon had even depicted his face surrounded by little murderers with knives, clubs, and bombs. He kept his life, but his reputation disintegrated. Dan Coughlin's story did not end in prison. His lawyers argued that at least one juror had a pretrial bias in the case against him. So Coughlin returned to court in January of 1893. The retrial went in his favor, and by the next year, he was a free man. He opened a saloon in Chicago. It's possible that people ventured there to seek out the owner who was once tried in the trial of the century. However, five years later, Coughlin fled Chicago after an arrest for jury bribery. He hid from authorities for eight years under a false name in Alabama. Once caught, he escaped yet again, ending up on a banana plantation in Honduras. His old partner, Michael Shack, died of complications from diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis more than a decade earlier, in 1898. Coughlin kept his secrets and lived the rest of his life free until his eventual death in 1910. Neither he nor Alexander Sullivan lived long enough to see Ireland become a free nation. Thanks again for tuning in to Solve Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on this case, amongst the many sources we used, we found Blood Runs Green, The Murder That Transfixed Gilded Age Chicago by Gillian O'Brien, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time.
Solve Murders, True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Solve Murders is written by Daniel William Gonzalez, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Cameron Nicod, and Laith Walshlager. Solve Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Their names have become larger than life. Their crimes, some of the most heinous in history. Their stories, examined each week on the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, journey past the headlines and into the minds and motives of the murderers who forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.